0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me and your Bibles to the book of Job. It's been a number of weeks since we've looked in this and we're considering together tonight chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You'll find this on page 417 of the Pew Bible. 417, and we're reading together Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome swords from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job is a believer and he is a devoted worshiper who had been richly blessed. And neither his privilege nor his position nor his prosperity had blinded him with pride or presumption. He had embraced the faith and good conscience. He had served the kingdom of God in his generation, and he had worshipped the Lord. And when God held the council with the heavenly court, he had addressed the devil. In chapter 1, he said, have you considered my servant Job? But Satan, the adversary, accused Job of being a believer in name only. Does Does Job fear God for no reason? That man is not a sincere believer. He is in it only for the benefits. You put a hedge around his family. You blessed all the work of his hands. You increased his wealth. What do you expect? Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. He is not, according to the devil, a monument of grace, but a sniveling wretch like all the rest. So God gave permission, and Satan destroyed all of Job's possessions. And with his prosperity stripped away and his children dead, Job was overwhelmed. But Job did not curse the Lord. In fact, the godly man did the very opposite. It says he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he worshiped. And apart from the crucifixion itself, that was the greatest act of worship in human history, as far as I'm concerned. In this, we see God's grace at work, and the devil was proved to be a liar. But he wasn't finished with his slander and falsehoods, as we'll see. After Job's catastrophic loss of people and possessions, we're back in the heavenly court. And once again, Scripture pulls back the veil and lets us peer into the invisible realm. All the spirits present themselves before the Almighty to give an account to Him, and as they assemble, the angels pay homage before the great white throne. Also present, as before, is the court adversary who was called literally the Satan. And this time he is as evasive and indifferent as he was previously. The Lord said to him, well, from where have you come? And Satan responds, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. He'd been tempting and prowling about, seeking someone to devour. And for the second time, the Lord highlights the integrity of his servant Job. Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? The exact same words he used previously to describe his servant. And I think it provoked the devil because he knew that he had been proved false. It was God's wise and subtle rebuke of the accuser of our brethren. You see, the Lord had won the first round of this contest, and Satan hated it. Previously, Job had been held up as a monument of grace, and here he is again. In fact, the Lord goes on to highlight the triumph of grace in the first adversity. He still holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. All of Satan's diabolical efforts have so far come to nothing, no success. But the devil wasn't finished. He claimed that Job's loyalty was not of grace. Skin for skin, he said. All that a man has he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. He means that as long as man does not suffer personally, he'll bear the loss. But when his life is in danger, it's an entirely different matter. If Job should be afflicted personally, he'll give up his integrity. Because he knows the devil understands how naturally you and I recoil from suffering. Matthew Henry does say self-love and self-preservation are powerful principles in the heart. Is there anyone here who has not felt the terror of gasping for air underwater when you've been down too long? That's why lifeguards have to be trained. Drowning men freak out. They're superhuman in their strength almost. Most, if not all, view their own lives as precious and worth saving. So affliction and pain and suffering have great leverage with the soul. And here the devil is claiming that Job values his life more than he values the Lord. But the psalmist says, your steadfast love is better than life. And as Job endures this difficult trial, he'll prove the truth of that statement. You see, throughout the history of the church, the martyrs have affirmed that truth. Your steadfast love is better than life. But Satan continues to scoff at the notion of God's grace at work in Job. He's a fraud. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't love you as much as he loves his own health. For reasons known only to him, God allows the devil to assault Job. Behold, he's in your hand only. Spare his life. Eager to triumph, of course, the devil strikes Job with loathsome sores over all his body. And we don't know the exact nature of the disease, but we do know that it was ugly and painful. It sounds like he had severely inflamed boils, maybe some type of severe leprosy. So profusely did those sores ooze that he had to constantly scrape away the pus. And he sat on the ash heap outside the city as an outcast from society. So painful, so ugly, so disgusting was his disease that nobody could stand to be near him. And thus we see that he who was wildly rich became exceedingly poor, like the Savior in whom he trusted. And at that point, Job's wife enters the scene and offers her own assessment. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. In other words, you may as well renounce your faith in God since you're benefiting so little by it. It's not doing you any good. Why carry on? The pain and suffering is far too great. It's intolerable. Just end it. In effect, what she was advising was either suicide or euthanasia. You take your pick. But you see, man has not been given authority to determine his own death. That decision belongs to God. Because he's not only the author, but he is the finisher of life. Paul says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And the exalted Lord Jesus is the one who has the keys of death and Hades. He alone has authority to open and close the door to the next world. Job's wife advised renouncing the faith and usurping his authority. But I want to pause for a moment. I want to consider her trials before we treat her too harshly. I mean, this woman had suffered almost as much as Job, everything but his disease. And yet even his physical affliction had serious implications for her. She was obliged to care for him. She bore the social stigma with him. Her heart, I'm sure, ached for him. And we can't minimize the misery of Job's wife because her suffering was intense. Many godly women have entertained doubts because of far less suffering. So let's not be too harshly critical. She was Job's closest companion and she posed a serious threat. No one on earth was nearer in relation to Job than her. Like Eve in the Garden of Eden, she was prompted by Satan to tempt her husband. And the devil attacked her when she was most vulnerable, and he capitalized on her misery and grief. She was angry. She was angry with God. Ten of her children, all of her children, were dead. And this kind of vehement emotion has characterized many of God's servants, as you know. David, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Jeremiah, O Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. Habakkuk, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear. So Job's wife is not unique in her reaction to the misery of her affliction. However, what she said was wrong. It was an affront to the Most High, and in time, I believe she would repent or prove that she had let go of the faith. And in trying to lead his wife to repentance, Job responds with true wisdom. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And I want you to notice that he said she spoke like a fool. He did not say that she was a fool. And I believe there is in this scene an important lesson for everyone here to keep in mind. Satan will try to use those who are closest to us in tempting us to sin. Job's suffering was great, his misery was deep, but his wife made it far worse. His own bride, she with whom he was one flesh, tempted to turn him away. And it was most likely a temporary lapse, I'm convinced. But it must have been very difficult for Job. Not only had he lost his children and his possessions and his health, but now his own heart. His beloved wife was now piling temptation on affliction, kicking him when he was down. And think of the pull on his emotions. From every angle, he's being assaulted. Had Job been less prepared, I think this would have broken his back. But he was a godly man, and the rhythm of his life had been framed by worship. He was in regular attendance, in private, and public worship, and when it was time to offer sacrifices, he was there. He believed God's word. He embraced the promise. He looked forward to heaven. And so, when the most violent temptation in his life came, he was well prepared. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He refused to renounce his faith in God. He did not sin against the Lord. And thus we see that God's grace did not disappoint. Job was preserved. The Lord again triumphs over the devil who proved himself a second time to be the liar that he is. So let us learn to distinguish the malicious schemes of Satan who sows discord. He incited God against Job, and he tempted Job to blaspheme God. Not that the devil could somehow move or influence the Almighty, but he proposed it, he requested it, he challenged God by denying his grace. And the Lord decreed that Job should persevere and prove the devil wrong. From the beginning, his ploy was to destroy fellowship between God and man. And the wise man in Proverbs 6 tells us this. A wicked man with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Such a man resembles his father, the devil. Subtle, malicious, hateful. That's the nature of evil. It breaks fellowship. It disrupts harmony. It spreads strife and separates close friends, according to Proverbs 16. It causes division. That's the devil's work. And that which the Lord Himself hates most. Of the seven things that are an abomination to God in Proverbs 6, this is the worst one who sows discord among brothers. That's the worst. Psalm 133 says, Unity among brothers is pleasant. The flip side, discord is a source of great misery. Paul says in Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Avoid them. Evade fellowship with them, lest you be infected by them. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and they're pernicious. Sowing discord is one of Satan's most dangerous and effective schemes, and therefore we have to strive in our efforts to protect the harmony of the church. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, unity is worth preserving. And if necessary, taking pains to maintain it. The devil will do his utmost to divide and sow discord. So together we affirm the essentials, but we can't expect to agree on everything. We're not going to. So we exercise humility with one another. We exercise gentleness and patience and forbearance with one another. Matthew Henry says, many slender twigs bound together become strong. A lot of slender twigs in this congregation, but together we're strong. We may be of different lengths and strengths and thicknesses, but we're bound together by Christ. But let us also, secondly, learn to believe Scripture and interpret providence in this light. And we've looked at this before, but from Job's perspective, these horrible afflictions were strange and confusing. He believed in God. He embraced the promise. He was saved by grace. So how could so many bad things happen to such a good person? Oh, he knew he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's why he offered sacrifices. But he trusted in a good God who cares for him, protects his people. Job had made the Lord his dwelling place. And in him he had found refuge. So why was Job suffering the pestilence which stalks in darkness and the destruction which wastes at noonday? Could it be that God was somehow reneging on his promises? That's what his friends would tell him. At least implied. You see, it was the Lord who had given and the Lord who had taken away. And then his closest friend and companion tempted him to forsake the faith. And it would seem as if God had not only forgotten him, but was even against him. And so many people interpret providence that way. Temporal blessings signal God's favor. Temporal affliction signify his disfavor. It's as simple as that. But you know what? Whatever providence brings, and we've prayed for some folks tonight that are believers who are suffering. Whatever providence brings, the truth of Scripture stands firm. The psalmist says that God is good, and he does good. We looked this morning in Sunday school at this verse. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Sometimes providence will lead us for a time in what seems like a very dark place. The evidence of heaven is clouded. Our joy in Christ is interrupted. The testimony of the Spirit seems to be suspended. And in the midst of such a season as that, God says, trust in the Lord. He's good and he does good. I agree with John Stott. He says, faith is learning to trust God in the dark, in unknowing, in apparent failure. Faith is what God gives us to help us live with uncertainties. So let's learn to believe scripture and interpret providence in the light of what God has revealed And then let's learn from this how temptations bring to light hidden weaknesses. You know, in the days of our health and prosperity, we're able to put our best foot forward. You're young and vigorous. But when adversity strikes, like Job's wife, unsubdued sin is exposed. How often does human prosperity lead to presumption? We're so prone to it. Like the rich man, soul You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He was a fool because he didn't realize that his soul that night would be required. He was overconfident in the day of prosperity and unprepared for adversity. I believe this was the case with Job's wife. She was unprepared for the trial ahead. Obviously, Job was more mature than his wife, though both of them were believers. And as a blameless and upright man, Job helped his wife to see the truth. She had some unsubdued sins that have been hidden and now exposed. David himself admits that his own corruptions have been exposed this way. Psalm 30, he says this, As for me... I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. You hid your face. I was dismayed. After years of prosperity, David had grown secure and overconfident. He rarely, if ever, thought of ill health or military defeat. He was a winner, after all. Like many of us, he never dreamed of his prosperity would languish. But when God hid his face... David was dismayed and his unsubdued sin was exposed. You know, it's been said that trials not only forge good character, but they also expose bad character. They help believers to see what needs work and to address weaknesses. We recognize the danger of overconfidence in the days of prosperity. It renders us vulnerable to the snares and temptations of presumption. So we keep in mind the fact that we're transient. We're temporal. We're made of dust. He knows our frame. But then finally, I want to close with this. We ought to rejoice in the doctrine of perseverance, or better yet, the preservation of the saints. I think Job is set forth in Scripture as a prime example of preserving grace. Satan threw at him everything he had, and the man did not sin with his lips. He did this not because he was strong, but he did this because God is gracious. He was kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And the Lord supports his people through the most difficult trials. The worst of all is death. I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through those waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, Job is a lesson in preservation, and he also dimly reflects the Lord Jesus himself. Because in every respect, he was tempted, as we are, and yet without sin. Christ never sinned with his lips. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He persevered to the greatest of all sufferings so that we might live. And the devil threw at him in the wilderness and in the garden and finally on the cross, everything he could think of. And the Lord Jesus stood firm. As the second Adam, he obeyed the word of God. I believe Job points forward to the great suffering servant who died on the cross, the one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet he persevered through great suffering to accomplish salvation. So tonight, let's rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all who believe. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful Old Testament example of your preserving grace. You won the contest and proved that you are the God who is able to keep your people through faith. And we thank you how he points forward to Christ, our great Savior, who never sinned in thought, word, or deed. May we praise you and give you thanks with gratitude in our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name.